Hi, I'm Lena Nguyen, a former New South Wales police lawyer. And I'm Mark Davidson, a former police sniper and detective. The lawyer, the sniper and the New South Wales police is our story, told in the hope that others who come up against the entrenched culture of law enforcement from within might find ways to speak more openly. And then we might all make changes to the system. Our focus is on how police responded in the aftermath of both our stories. We're passionate about justice and we're determined to add our voices to calls for change so no one else is discarded as we were. In this series, we take you step by step through what happened to us. In this episode, we start with Lena. Until December 2019, Lena was happy in her job, working at a senior level. Initially, she was employed as a police lawyer and then advanced her policing career to work in strategic and advisory roles to the senior police executive commanders. Then, she went to a police farewell party. What happened next was deeply traumatic. And I'm warning here, we discuss it in some detail. But the response from Lena's police co-workers and the organisation as a whole was just as distressing. Shortly, I'm going to ask Lena how her story began. And then in a second episode, what happened in the aftermath? In our third episode, we'll bring you Mark's story. Mark was the senior sniper who waited 16 hours to take out gunman Man Horon Monis as he held 18 people hostage. Monis killed Tori Johnson and Katrina Dawson was another tragic casualty dying from police bullet fragments. The story is well known. In the fourth episode, we discuss what was not well known, how the coroner's inquest was manipulated to keep operational failings in the dark. Then in episode five, clinical psychologist Lynn Worsley joins us to dive deep into the traumatic psychological impact that comes to bear as a result of whistleblowing in law enforcement. In episode six, we speak about the deeply tribal cultural ecosystem, which is the New South Wales Police Force and the nature of whistleblowing in that fraught space with veteran former ABC journalist, Quentin Dempster. Episode seven invites Managing Director of Mark Lawyers, Michael Bradley, to speak about the legal ramifications of whistleblowing and what went wrong in the way our situations were handled. Finally, in episode eight, all of us contribute to discuss what needs to change. But to begin, Let's look at how we got to this place, this time, and this conversation between us. Selena, are you ready? Yes, I am. Okay, let's set the scene. Can I start by asking you, what did you do before you joined the New South Wales Police Force? I graduated from law school from university and my first job out of uni was in London for a corporate law firm. And then I came back and was really passionate about children's law and, and kids. I worked in child protection as a lawyer, worked for a national children's youth law centre and then had my first baby. So what drew you to working for the New South Wales Police Force instead of like in the private sector? Oh, it's the work. You know, so exciting, so unique, so rewarding. Can't do that kind of work anywhere else. I knew I could never be an operational police officer, but the thought of being able to support police was just such a, to me, it was a dream job. 
So when you once you joined the New South Wales Police, what what were your duties? So I was employed as a legal officer, a solicitor. I started off by defending civil claims made against the New South Wales Police, the irony of it. And then I went to work in the Police Prosecutions Command and that's when I was advising the police executive on law reform proposals relating to police powers and looking at draft bills and yeah, changes to law, cabinet minutes and things like that. So what was your experience like working with the police before the event? I loved it, Mark. It was my dream job. I gave it everything, my heart and my soul. I, I loved it. How did you feel about your colleagues that you worked with uh, before the event? Well, I felt a sense of belonging and I felt, I, I thought I could trust people and I felt that it was a, a good place to work. Mm. I guess from this experience, I now realise that it wasn't, but certainly at the time, I felt a sense of belonging and felt very comfortable going to social events and interacting with police and doing things that were work-related outside of work. Okay. Yeah, I can relate to that. So then in December 2019, you attended a social event. Can you explain what happened that night? I was invited to farewell a detective superintendent, a commander of an elite squad who I had known from work and who I I had a lot of respect for that person. And it was at the local police pub. I worked at police headquarters in Parramatta. We've got two towers, Tower A and Tower B, and the pub we called it Tower C because we just saw it as an extension of police headquarters. Mm. And it was the end of the year and I thought, yeah, I really wanted to show my respect and, and say farewell. And it being the end of the year as well, it was a good time just to sort of let my hair down and, and celebrate a little bit. Can you tell me how the night felt to you when you arrived and who else was there? I did contact a colleague that afternoon by email to ask her whether we could go in together because I didn't have any plans to go in with anyone else. Um, I emailed her and she said that she'd just meet me down there. So I knew I had to walk into that event in the pub by myself. So I naturally felt a bit socially awkward about that and a bit nervous, but I, I pushed through that. I knew I wanted to go to farewell this person and, and pay my respects. So I pushed past that awkwardness and I knew that initial walking into a busy pub would be a bit nerve wracking. But as soon as I got there, I immediately saw people I knew from work. It's a pub, very, very busy. That pub's got a capacity of at least a couple of thousand people. I walked in, there was police everywhere, people I knew. So I immediately felt a sense of safety and comfort. And then I saw some senior police and then I saw the person who I was farewelling and and then felt immediately safe. Yeah, So and these people were colleagues that were a little bit detached. They weren't in your unit, but you provided legal services to them. Is that, is that correct? The, the main people who were there were detectives from squads, yeah. from police headquarters, and from a professional point of view, I had very little interaction with them because the role that I had at the time, I was in an executive support role for a very senior police executive officer. And so I knew these people from, you know, mainly from headquarters or as a solicitor, I would 
help them out with witnessing affidavits mm. or I'd use them for their operational knowledge to support my own knowledge. And things like, you know, police headquarters has a gym, which is a really important part of keeping healthy and and officer wellbeing and I'd know people from the gym. So I was quite happy at police quarters and as I said I feel that sense of belonging and so I think it was a normal part of my job to interact with police even if I wasn't working with them necessarily day to day. And two months before that night in October 2019 I'd been invited to another social event on the northern beaches in Collaroy and I went there with a police colleague and that was a night of drinks and that was also to farewell another senior officer was his retirement but also not just an opportunity to get people together and to socialize that was a really fun night and on that night there was one detective in particular who I started a conversation with and got to know that night he'd walked me back to my accommodation after that event and then I immediately saw him when I walked into the pub in December and took a seat next to him so that individual that you saw at Collaroy, how did he behave towards you in the um, Parramatta pub in 2019 in December? Well, as soon as I saw him, I said hello. And the first thing that he said to me was, Lena, there's no missing you tonight. And I didn't at the time take that as anything other than very literally, because I am quite a literal person and sometimes I don't, I don't have great awareness when a man's trying to I guess pick me up or trying to pay me a compliment but I now understand I thought he meant because I was wearing a bright pink outfit so I thought he meant the color of it but clearly he he was complimenting me on on standing out and and looking quite attractive that night Mm. yeah and so what what happened after that compliment I noticed that he was intoxicated so I asked I got there at about 5 p.m on a Friday afternoon I'd asked him how long he and his colleagues were there for. We said we've been here about just after lunchtime. So I knew they'd been there for several hours drinking. And I said, oh, okay, looks like I've got some catching up to do because clearly he had had, had a few drinks and yeah. I had just driven from home on the Central Coast to Parramatta and hadn't had any drinks at all. Okay. It was a, it was a really busy night and we're in the middle of bushfires as well. Mark, that, that summer of 2019, really hot, steamy night. I had... A, a drink bought for me immediately and the drinks were flowing and I to me was just another social event just chatting and being happy and mm. trying to celebrate the end of the year and interact with everyone obviously I'd met him two months before and we had some conversations and to me it was just friendly and he was one of many 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 people who I was speaking to that night Okay, so at some point after you arrived, his behaviour towards you went sour. Is that fair to say? Can you describe what happened? Yeah, I had drinks bought for me and I remember, you know, because it was so hot and I hadn't had anything to eat in terms of dinner, mm-hmm. I normally I would eat quite early, about 5 or 5.30. And so as the night went on, it was about 8pm and I still hadn't eaten. I remember ordering a pizza. I was drinking water quite responsibly throughout the night because I wanted to manage the effect of the alcohol. It was also really hot, so I wanted to keep 
hydrated. And I don't think I'd realised how quickly I'd had my first three drinks. And I was getting sparkling wine purchased for me, mm. and it's not something I normally drink. And I guess as the night went on, I remember the, yeah, having the pizza was a key point of the night. I remember sitting down having a pizza and I had braces at the time. And when I had my braces, it was really important to me to control my portions of food because I was always conscious about it getting stuck in my teeth. And I eat pizza with a knife and fork, um, which I know is unusual. And I remember being teased about that. And so that was a key part of the night that I remember at about eight o'clock. And then, yeah, the next thing I can tell you, because all I can see is a blank screen. If you ask me to go back and what happened, it's just a blank screen. I don't see anything. I just remember sitting on a bar stool, being quite in shock because I'd realised someone's finger was in my vagina mm. in the pub. And then I realised it was that detective who I hadn't met in Colorado two months before. And I was just, my immediate reaction was, who's around, who can see? And I didn't stand up and yell and cause a fuss because I knew that I was, you know, at a workplace function it was extremely full. There were people everywhere. I was surrounded by colleagues, police, senior police. And my immediate reaction, I wouldn't say it was logical or rational. It was just how my body and how my brain reacted. And it was just who can see. And then I think I, I, think I wanted to handled it calmly. I think I didn't want to cause a scene. When this incident was occurring and you're on your bar stool, is that correct? Yes. You said you're on a bar stool? Yeah. When, when you realised what was happening, can you describe how this detective was standing or was situated in proximity to you? Or Yeah, he was standing right in front of me. So when I realised what was happening and then, and then I saw him in front of me, he was, I mean, he was probably, what, 30 centimetres away from my face. So his his face was in front of your face? Yes. Yeah. And given how close he was standing next to me and I knew it was a finger, yeah. I realised it was him. Yeah. And then how, how did that situation cease or break up? Can you describe that? My memory is that when I realised it was happening... I motioned backwards as a way to get the distance between myself and him. And the next thing I remember is getting up. And then I think, I think I might have spoken to someone, I don't know exactly, but probably the next thing I remember clearly is a security guard approaching me and kicking me out of the pub. And I was just told to leave. So I, I don't understand how it is that you were singled out to be removed from the premises. Can you sort of shed any light on that? I don't because, well, no one's explained it to me and I guess it's only the security guard who made that decision and took that action can explain that. And he has been subpoenaed to give evidence in the upcoming trial. Right. My memory was that it was 
immediate, almost instantaneous. But if you look at the objective evidence, such as other witnesses, CCTV, the security guard's statement, Mm. it appears to have been perhaps a gap of 20 minutes or something. But to me, it felt like it was immediate and instantaneous and it felt clearly like a a punishment. So in my mind, I was removed because, because of having been sexually assaulted. That's what it felt like at the time. So there's there's blank moments in your memory recall. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. So that's how I experience it, and that's the thing. You know, as a victim making the complaint, you're expected to have some kind of linear, clear memory of this. But if you ask me exactly what happened, then what happened, then what happened, there are I just see blank screens. Can you take us through from what happened from that moment? Well, I was in tears. I, I was, I was crying. I was very upset, and at the time, I didn't articulate that my shock and my distress was what he'd just done to me. I was just fixated on the shame of having been removed in front of everybody for no reason, and all I knew at the time was I'd been sexually violated, and I was removed immediately after that, and then. All of a sudden, that detective is standing outside with me. He'd followed me out. The detective had followed me, and all I could think about was why was I kicked out? Why was I kicked out? Because of having been sexually assaulted. So I was quite repetitive in in, in expressing my confusion about why have I been kicked out? Why have I been kicked out? He said to me, Lena, it's because you're attractive, and if, yeah, if you're all bloke, then you wouldn't be, but no one, yeah. The rest of us blokes, we we don't stand out, but you do. So then I felt more confusion and shame about being kicked out because of my appearance and being a woman. And I do remember some kind of momentary kiss between us at that point. I remember holding hands. I can't tell you why that happened. Yeah, so I'd like to just maybe freeze frame this section for, for a moment and dig in a little bit deeper, if you don't mind. Sure. So a second ago, you, this detective had maybe kissed you and, and then at some point you were held, holding hands and you said you, you don't understand why you allowed that to happen. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, at the, t- at the time, I was very confused. So I didn't know a lot of what was happening or, or why. And I couldn't, wouldn't have been able to explain to you at the time why... I mean, I was even confused at why he was there. I mean, he'd just done that to me and then I've left and now he's there again with me outside. So the whole thing was extremely confusing to me. So this detective, in my opinion, has created a scenario where you're, you've been drinking, you're probably under the effects of alcohol, you're in a pretty comfortable sort of environment with people that you know or know of, and uh, he's done this horrible thing to you inside. We don't really know why it, it is then you were removed from the place, but he, he tells you because you were too attractive and... Is that right? Is that what he's... Yeah, he told me, Lena, because you're a woman and you're attractive and you stand out. But then now he's feeding you more compliments after you've been removed and you're outside. Yes. It seems he... to me there's some... There's, there's like a... There's gaslighting going on, if, if that makes sense. Does, how do you feel about that term? 
Yeah, I do understand that term to mean when someone is intentionally, I guess, distorting your reality or or intentionally doing things or saying things to make a person question their own reality. And so I would say that term is a fair one to describe what he was doing to me outside that pub. And in a weird way, even though he had just violated me, he was also a source of familiarity and someone who I associated with as comfort and some level of safety. And all I know is that I just wanted to walk away from the pub. So I just started walking away up the street and he was there. Yeah, he was just there. (laughs) I think for the women who are listening, it's very, very easy to have a sense of self-blame and maybe a sense of having contributed to that scenario. Mm-hmm. But the truth is I was extremely vulnerable. I was intoxicated. I was out in a dark street in the middle of the Parramatta CBD on my own. And this is also a police officer who is trained in knowing and identifying vulnerable people and having a duty of care to make sure vulnerable people are safe. Definitely. I couldn't believe what was happening and that sense of self-blame that I felt almost in confusion now that I have read and seen the other objective evidence, including his version, it gives me a clearer picture of what happened, which can relieve my sense of self-blame a little bit. But at the time, it's easy to feel that. But I now know absolutely that he manipulated me. He took advantage of me. He felt entitled to my body. And not only that, I now know that inside the pub, when he approached me and touched my thigh without my permission and then put his finger in my vagina, actually, the evidence is that I told him no and to stop. And he continued anyway. So what happened when you walked down the street after that moment? I remember just walking away, just wanted to walk away from the humiliation and the shame of having just been violated in front of a whole bunch of police and colleagues and senior police and then getting kicked out. So I just walked and he was with me. Then I remember walking up that street and ended up in a park area, which is about 400 metres away from the headquarters of the New South Wales Police Force. We ended up at that park. And if you ask me now again, the specific chain of events from the moment we're in the park to what happened next, I have a blank screen. But just to be factually 
accurate with my memory. There was a, a very, very short, very brief conversation we had that I do remember just before he raped me. Again, out of confusion, I just wanted to know his intentions. I was confused. Now I'm in a park with him and I asked him, what do you want to spend the night with me? Is that, is that what you want? That's, that's all I remember. But the next thing I remember was realizing that he was on top of me, that his penis was in my vagina. I yelled, stop, got up. I think I pushed him. I used my body to clearly show my objection and I used my voice to indicate my clear objection and that I didn't want that or didn't agree to it, didn't consent to it. So in that process of you getting up from being in the grass, what did you see him doing? Or, Or what do you remember him saying? Not much because I had this sudden urge an urgent need to urinate and I was in the middle of Parramatta CBD it was dark and I just needed to relieve myself and all I could think about was getting some level of decency and privacy to urinate so I went into an area squatted (laughs) a, a car full of guys drove past one of them yelled out to me Mm. and then I realized he'd left he wasn't there and then yep I went to my car and passed out in the back of the car for a couple of hours and then woke up and drove home and now I know why the brain, my brain protected me and not remembered so many of the details because when I read the rest of the evidence, it's even more horrific than what I realised. So I think in a way, my mind protected me from it all. I can talk about the rape and the that night quite without emotion but the thing that gets me every time is I think back to that bloody car and those guys and that guy that yelled out to me as I was squatting and urinating post-rape that's the part that I always choke up at and I think Mm. it's definitely the shame upon the shame upon the shame just the public humiliation of the entire ordeal that I was sexually assaulted in a pub full of people and police and colleagues and then raped in a park with people watching, I now know, and then urinating post-rape as a physiological response to the trauma and then being yelled at. So that's the part that chokes me up. So when I think about going public with my story, really, I've got nothing left to hide. (laughs) I've been stripped that bare. There's no shame left anyway, and the shame's not on me. I've, I've been stripped bare, naked, raped in a park. So there's nothing, I've got nothing left to hide, nothing left to lose. No, it's incredibly brave sharing your story in the manner that you're doing. It's, yeah, 
Thank you. Well, when you survive that level of public humiliation and realise I'm still here, <laughs> not just surviving but moving on and thriving and now speaking about it and advocating for change. I know it looks like courage. Sometimes it doesn't feel like courage. It just feels natural. It just feels like a sense of duty. I can relate to that. I'm sure you can. Mm. Big time. You couldn't get more different stories, Mark, between you and no, me. I agree, yeah. We never once crossed paths at work, wouldn't have had a reason to, didn't know each other. We look completely different and we just are different, yeah. Even when we first spoke on the phone, when you reached out to me, I was like, I have no idea <laughs> who I just spoke to. I just poured out my heart to this woman who rang me cold. I mean, it wasn't cold. There was a, there was a text message before the phone call and we just had this quite a candid, honest account of what I went through to, to a person I've never met before. And I, saw, I hung up the phone and went, what the hell did I just share with someone? You know, it's just, I, not, I don't regret it now, but it was just like this epiphany of like, who that person could have been anyone trying to press me for information. And I just spewed out, you know, because it's still raw with me in a sense, even those years have gone by. Yeah, so, and it's still an important journey that I think I'm on as you, you'll find yourself on the similar journey. So that's why we're here. And that's a natural bond and connection between us, Mark, because two completely different experiences, yet the commonality is the culture and the treatment, the cover-ups. Yeah, well, there's a common adage that you often hear when when you're telling the truth, when you're telling something honestly, you don't need to remember like it's it's if you're making stuff up, you need to remember that dot the i's and cross the t's. <laughs> but when you've we've lived something and and it's so real and and you're telling the truth, you don't need to make stuff up because it it just comes out of you naturally and flows, and and that's what both of us have to share, and hopefully give people in similar situations to what we've found ourselves in the strength to come forward and ask for help. Sure. In the next episode, we'll pick up the story and find out what happened for Lena when she reported her experience to her bosses. This podcast was initiated by us, Lena Nguyen and Mark Davidson. The executive producer was Gretchen Miller with sound engineering by Judy Rapley. If you've experienced sexual assault or any kind of family or domestic violence, call the National Counselling Line on 1800 737 732. That's 1800 RESPECT. Thanks for listening. See you next time.